Hello and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. After our slightly longer than planned summer break, we're finally back. And I'm your new host, Jake Cordell, a reporter in our Moscow newsroom. We'd like to welcome back our regular subscribers and say hello to our first-time listeners. This week on the programme, seven members of a Russian anti-fascist group were jailed for up to 18 years on terrorism charges in a case that observers have compared to a Soviet-era show trial. Well, because uh, the way this system works is that it's very hard for it to roll back. Once they've laid out certain accusations, and these are very serious accusations, and once this whole matter has been transferred to court here, it's just very hard for them to admit that they were mistaken. Ivan Nechaparenka of the New York Times joins us in the studio to discuss the verdict and the public outcry which followed. And later, we look at compromise in modern Russia, the decisions people have to make about how to engage with the Russian government and the trade-offs involved in getting into bed with the state. I settled on this question of compromise as a way of telling that story of what's it like to be someone with understandable, even virtuous aims, ambitions, goals, desires for one's life, but realizing those goals and, and achieving them requires some kind of collision, let's say, with the system. That's the subject of the New Yorker correspondent Joshua Yaffa's new book, Between between two fires, truth, ambition and compromise in Putin's Russia, and he'll be with us in the studio today. On Monday, a court in Penza, a city some 400 miles southeast of Moscow, sentenced seven members of a Russian anti-fascist group to up to 18 years in prison, in a case which has sparked outrage among human rights observers here in Russia and internationally. Investigators detained the group, which is called SET in Russian, or Network in English, in 2017, claiming they were planning to set off bombs during the 2018 presidential election and that year's World Cup in Russia. Throughout the trial, the defendants said investigators tortured them to extract false testimony, and human rights groups have said that evidence against the seven men, who are between 23 and 31 years old, was fabricated. Here's one of the moving testimonies from Ilya Shakursky, a 23-year-old who was sentenced to 16 years. I was told to keep my head down and sit on a bench. I was blindfolded, bound and gagged. Then they connected some wires to my toes. I felt the current and couldn't stop myself from groaning and shuddering. They continued until I promised to say what they told me to say. After that, I forgot the word no. I repeated everything the officers told me. In the studio to talk about the case and the public outcry that has followed, New York Times correspondent Ivan Nechaparenka. Hello, Ivan. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, welcome. The pleasure is mine. So this is a fairly complicated case and there are pretty serious allegations on both sides. Can you give us an overview of the key details? The key detail is that... Uh, it is the investigators from the FSB who were in charge of this case. And it seems that they uh, were basically allowed or allowed themselves to use whatever means uh, they needed to to extract testimonies from these people. Um, and what they did is they, they tortured these people according to what they were saying in court and according to what their lawyers said, according to what other witnesses said, because other witnesses, not um, accused people, but witnesses were uh, apparently tortured as well. So I think this is the key thing. And this is one key thing. The other key thing also is that um, 
the society's reaction to this case was also uh, very interesting and kind of very pronounced and kind of it was emblematic of this new wave of uh, people's interest in uh, what happens in Russia and uh, all the injustices that happen in Russia. So what has that outcry been from public? I mean, some people have compared this to kind of 1930s show trials, even gone that far. So can you give us an overview of how Russian public has reacted to this case? Well, I think people were really shocked by the sentences uh, because the sentences were quite unusual. People got used to sentences of two, three, five years uh, when people were arrested for violating uh, the law on uh, public assemblies, you know, during the Moscow, the wave of the latest wave of Moscow protests. But 18 years, which is what uh, the alleged leader of this uh, group uh, uh, was sentenced to, I think this was a bit of a shock to many people. Also, uh, many people followed the case, but this is a, a fairly... Um a complicated uh, affair and it's far away from Moscow so many people didn't really they heard about it but they didn't really look deep into it but then the sen- when the sentences were announced on Monday I see it that people were really really shocked Why did the authorities target these individuals? Well um, by authorities we have to I mean we have to understand that these are not this is not the Kremlin. This is not like the Russian state, the huge Russian state. It's particular people in a particular city uh, ahead of a major, that what they did, they did it ahead of a major sporting event, the uh, 2018 World Cup. And it seems to be, we can only assume that, of course, uh, but I think it uh, would be very um, fair to assume that uh, what happened was that uh, ahead of the World Cup, they just needed to uh, foil a major uh, terrorist conspiracy to show that Russia deals very effectively with uh, with these matters. That uh, it 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 is very professional, capable at uh, figuring out who wants to do what uh, and and making you know this major sporting event safe. What they didn't realize is that this is going to drag for much longer because of the public reaction, because of the because the trial was an open one, which was a very unusual thing. And uh, I think uh, someone needs to find out why it was an open trial. This is very unusual for a terrorist trial. Uh, and uh, because of the public attention, they had to produce more evidence and they had to be checked by their superiors. And uh, there was a lot of noise and Putin had to get involved himself. And this is what we have to realize, that these guys were really brave to... Uh, tell the world what happened because uh, as we know they were presented with a choice uh, either to get uh, much shorter sentences which is what one of them was sentenced to 3.5 years in prison uh, and he admitted uh, his guilt he said basically that what the investigators said happened happened uh, and all these others were presented with the same choice um, but at least four of them uh, were brave enough to say that their initial guilty pleas were extorted um, after they were brutally tortured by FSB agents. And these allegations of torture, they came out during the trial. As you say, it was an open court hearing and media outlets like Media Zona have, have followed this very closely. Why did the prosecutors continue pushing this case, even as kind of public attention was turning to the idea that maybe this wasn't really what they were saying had gone on? Well, because uh, the way this system works is that it's very hard for it to roll back. Once they've laid out certain accusations, and these are very serious accusations, and once this uh, whole matter has been transferred to court hearing, it's it's just very hard 
hard for them to admit that they, you know, that they were mistaken and to, especially if they are accused of torturing people. We see it everywhere. We see it in the Nemtsov case. We see it on all these other cases. The system tries to be monolithic because by being monolithic, it, it's, it's, it, it is its main strength. It wasn't only the Golunov case. Last year, we also saw actor Pavel Ustinov was freed after public outcry, as was student Yegor Zhukov, both of who were charged with uh, both of who were charged with events relating to the protests in Moscow last summer. So what's the difference between them being released or given lenient sentences and the very harsh sentences which were laid down in this case? Well, I think um, uh, the main difference is that uh, this, the cases that you have listed, uh, the Ustinov case, uh, the Golanov case, they all happened in uh, Moscow, in the capital city, where uh, media life is much more vibrant and social life is much more vibrant. And in the case of Golanov, uh, journalists were able to summon dozens or hundreds of people uh, to come in front of the Moscow police headquarters and stand in pickets to make sure Ivan uh, would get released. In the case of Ustinov, you had artists and celebrities who have um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers on Instagram and other social networks saying that this is a completely bogus case. So uh, and in the case of this affair in Penza, we basically only had a few outlets, Media Zona, uh, with very limited actually reach uh, telling us about this. And uh, as I've said before, it's, it only happened on Monday that I think many people actually learned about what had happened. Many Russians probably heard about this case for the first time on Monday when the sentences were laid down. What happens now, now that there's been this big public reaction? Well, I'm, I think uh, people will follow it more closely. There's going to be an appeal, but I don't expect the appeal to actually uh, overrule the, the, the ruling of the Penza court. So um, I would expect uh, this whole case to go all the way up to the European Court of Human Rights. And a Russian news website, Medusa, reported yesterday that their parents are have united themselves into an organization and that they're going to fight for their release. And as we have discussed before, there seems to be like uh, a new wave of solidarity in Russia. Do you think it will produce a change in how the FSB approaches it next time they have a similar case? Again, as I said before, this was an open case. This was the key thing. If it was a closed case, as in many other cases, for instance, there's this U.S. Um, citizen, not just U.S., he is a citizen of many countries, Paul Whelan, who is accused of spying uh, in Russia, and his trial is, is held behind closed doors. We don't know the details, and even lawyers cannot give, a, give us details because they have signed a non-disclosure agreement. So um, they can just, next time they can just, close the court hearing say that this is a terrorist affair we can you know this involves state secrets state witnesses that would uncover uh, methods of FSB work that we wouldn't want potential terrorists to know about thank you very much for joining us today thank you for the second part of the show I'm delighted to be able to welcome Joshua Yaffa Joshua is an American journalist who is currently the Moscow correspondent for the New Yorker magazine His new book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia, has just been released and is receiving rave reviews for its nuanced look at the Russian psyche, an exploration of the compromises and moral struggles Russian citizens face in choosing how to interact with their government. Instead of dividing Russia into a country of oppressors and oppressed, 
Joshua looks at the great, often forgotten middle, the Russians who neither love nor loathe their government but sit in between, trying to work the system to their advantage. In doing so, they are forced to confront personal and professional dilemmas about how much they want to engage with an authoritarian system and weigh up whether the potential benefits are worth the moral costs. Josh, great to have you on the show. And first of all, congratulations on the book. Thanks so much. So the central theme is this idea of the compromises that Russians have to make when they're working with the Russian state. And this is an interesting way of looking at Russia because the idea of compromise is quite simple. We all understand it. But when we look at Russia, often we tend to portray people as pro-Putin, anti-Putin. So can you explain a bit more about this idea of compromise in the Russian context and how you came to realize this was the way you wanted to explore Putin's Russia? Sure. And I think you're exactly right that there is something universal about compromise. It's not uh, somehow magically particular or unique to the Russian context, not at all. The opposite. It's something we all recognize from our own lives, uh, perhaps no matter where where we live and what sort of society we're in. So it was the universality of compromise that appealed to me as a prism and a uh, way of of explaining uh, Russia. But I do think there is something particular about the way it works uh, in in Putin's Russia and and the way that the kinds of compromises that uh, people uh, face and the way that they navigate them. There is a kind of Russian particularity uh, to the form and and, and the kind of contours of of compromise. And I think it is a useful prism and way of understanding Russia that gives a kind of specific um, insight to the place, at least that was my kind of aim and that, that was my idea in writing the book this way. Because I do think oftentimes in the way Russia's portrayed in the West and and by myself in a lot of my er earlier reporting, there is this kind of dichotomy uh, that is used to to separate Russia or Russians into the two camps that you loosely articulated, right? There's Putin and all of the kind of mini Putins around him uh, who use repression and propaganda and all sorts of other nefarious dirty tricks to enrich themselves Uh, and keep the population down. And then there are this much smaller, heroic group of uh, freedom fighters, activists, dissidents, and so on. Both of those groups definitely exist, and and the confrontation between them is a story that's very much uh, merits our attention, and it's an important one. But I wasn't sure that it was the only story to tell about Russia, and I wasn't sure it was even the most um, important or interesting story to tell about Russia. And I wanted to capture what it felt like uh, in the middle, where I think... In Russia, just like in most societies, the vast majority of people actually live and and make their lives. And so I settled on this question of compromise as a way of telling that story of what's it like to be someone with understandable, even virtuous aims, ambitions, goals, uh, desires for one's life. But realizing those goals and, and achieving them requires some kind of collision, let's say, with the system. Uh, with the Putin state. And that collision, uh, you know, brings up this question of compromise. How much are you willing to to bend? Uh, how much are you willing to sacrifice uh, your own ideas, maybe your own uh, morals, understanding of right and wrong, in the particular, in the service of a greater good? And, and that is both a conundrum or dilemma that is universal, and so therefore I thought perhaps appealing or, or understandable to readers, but also in its particular specific to Putin's Russia. So it has some explanatory power for what Russia uh, is like at this moment in time. And another thing you talk about is people go into these compromises with their eyes open. They're not so much victims. They know what they're kind of getting into. They know the deals they're making. Do you think people are aware of the trajectory it puts them on, on this compromise and compromise and compromise? 
I don't know if, if the characters in my book, before we started talking, before my reporting with them began, had a narrative for themselves about the arc of their compromises. I think a lot of people were pretty clear-eyed about compromise in the kind of micro sense, right? Like being able to say this or that decision was the result of a particular compromise. Someone like Constantine Ernst, the head of Channel One, who's a main character in the book, in conversations with him, you know, he was able to talk about how sometimes he puts on air on Channel One uh, news programming or information programming that doesn't necessarily meet his aesthetic standards for what is kind of beautiful and worthy and, and sophisticated. You know, he, while being a very loyal Putinist and an absolutely loyal member of the uh, kind of upper echelons of power of the system, nonetheless fashions himself as a kind of cultural sophisticate and estet and has standards, not necessarily kind of ethical or, or political ones, um, or rather, I don't think his ethical or political standards put him in any sort of opposition to what he does at Channel One, but sometimes maybe on just aesthetic grounds, he he's forced or asked to air things on Channel One that don't meet... Um, his vision of, of, again, what's kind of beauty, beautiful and worthy from an aesthetic standpoint. But he talked to me about how, nonetheless, sometimes he has to put on air certain pieces of news programming that he might not choose for himself, but that gives him, you know, certain leeway in other areas, or that's part of the bargain that he uh, sees himself as being in at, at the head of Channel One. So someone like Ernst was able to narrate um, those kinds of uh, compromises and was certainly aware of them. Also, I think someone like Dr. Lisa, unfortunately, Lisa and I, Dr. Lisa and I didn't have any interviews uh, for this book because she died um, quite tragically in December of 2016 before I began uh, reporting on the book, at least in an active way. But people around Lisa, her friends, colleagues, um, her husband, Gleb, were able to talk about Lisa's compromises and the way that she used her proximity to power, in some cases, her direct proximity to Putin himself through her seat on the Kremlin Human Rights Council to achieve concrete good for for people in need, especially uh, sick and injured children in the war zone in Ukraine. And there was an awareness among people around Lisa that that enacted uh, a a toll on her, took a toll on her psychologically, and and she lost a lot of uh, one-time supporters over her involvement in the Donbass war and her humanitarian missions there and, and her closeness to Kremlin officials and and that was a price essentially she felt like she had no choice but to pay if 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 the um benefit from that was being able to help people and that was something that that again those around her were were pretty clear-eyed and understanding and being able to talk to me about so when it came to the question of individual kind of forks in the road right what what does someone do in this or that situation in a kind of micro sense there was an awareness of of compromise and ability to talk about it i don't know if people would have seen themselves in this kind of macro long arc uh, that I write about in the book. Perhaps that's what an outsider can do, what a journalist or a writer can do uh, that individuals don't always see for themselves when when they're in the middle of it. Do you think the characters would have understood the compromises that the other characters made? Would they have understood each other's journeys? I think so. It's a good question to think about it that way. I haven't quite um, asked myself that question um, and, and haven't been asked it by, by someone yet. I ultimately think yes. I think that uh, the characters in the book make these compromises by and large, at least in their own minds, because they want to achieve something uh, good and, 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 and uh, virtuous. That's, that's certainly the story they tell themselves. That's why uh, Dr. Lisa 
entered into these relationships with Kremlin officials because her real goal was to help as many people as she could. And the nature of Putin's Russia is, you know, proximity to power and, and state resources is the thing that will give you, you know, more um, more resources, more power, more ability to whatever your kind of pursuit or, or activity is. The state does have, if not exactly a monopoly, then, then at least, you know, a preponderance of, of um, power and, and resources. The same is true uh, as it was for Dr. Lisa, for someone like uh, Kirill Serebnikov, the theater director, who I also write about in the book and is one of the book's main characters for a while when the Putin state was interested in being seen to be supporting or, 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 or in some way affiliated with avant-garde contemporary art forms. Serebnikov really benefited from that period. He received a lot of state largesse to put on uh, plays, to make films, got state appointments. He was named the head of uh, Google Center and so on. And I think the choices that Dr. Lisa made, the choices that Serebnikov made, right? They're, they're, they would be understandable to someone like Ernst and, and vice versa, people who at least think of themselves as using proximity to the state and, and, and kind of being in the felicitous shadow of the state. They're doing that to achieve something that they think is, is kind of right and worthy and uh, just. Of, of course, the thing about compromise is that it can often change you, the, the process of compromise can, can end up changing the reason why you started out making those compromises in the first place. So different characters in the book end up at very different places. And I think that not all of them would kind of agree in, in finality with where each uh, person landed, right? And where the compromises kind of took them and left them by the end of that process. But the idea of wanting to do something good, having some ambitions and, and ideas uh, that you want to realize and also being pretty clear-eyed that the best, if not only, path to doing that is through some sort of cooperation with the state. I think all the characters in the book would would uh, understand that. Do you think the regime understands this phenomenon and even can exploit it sometimes, you know, reaching out to opposition figures, offering them the chance to work with the system, knowing that it may cause a divide uh, among their opponents? Absolutely. Uh, uh, of course, I think that this notion of um, wiliness that I write about in the book, which comes from uh, an idea or rather essay written by Yuri Levada, the really pioneering uh, legendary sociologist. Levada Center was named after him or created by him, rather. Uh, he wrote this essay called The Wily Man, which which highlights a lot of the kind of traits and inclinations and habits of compromise that, that I write about in the book. And the sort of wiliness that Levada describes is something that the Putin state absolutely understands and does its best to foster and take advantage of. Look, for example, at the case of uh, Serebnikov or Dr. Liza. These were people who the state uh, very cleverly kind of brought into its big tent, I guess you could say, for a while when it, uh, as we as we talked about, wanted to be seen to be close to or somehow supporting contemporary art. It very um, cleverly and kind of skillfully brought Serebnikov into the fold uh, Dr. Lisa, of course, was quite useful uh, to the Kremlin's um, desire to be seen as playing some sort of humanitarian role in Ukraine, right? Not just being uh, the uh, aggressor or kind of invading country, but doing out of, so out of a humanitarian impulse. Uh, being seen to support uh, Dr. Lisa's efforts was very useful in that sense. And that was something that she understood and, and her friends, supporters, colleagues were able to tell me after the fact how she was pretty clear-eyed the way that the state was using uh, her involvement in Ukraine for its own purposes. But she also was pretty clear-eyed about, uh, you know, what she could get out of that exchange, and it was worth it to her um, in the end. But but yes, to your to your question, I think that 
at its most nimble and skillful, the Putin system has been able to bring all manner of people into the fold and to make them part of the system in some ways to even co-opt them into uh, joining the system. And and that has given it uh, a certain um, stability. I think that's one reason for the Putin system's longevity so far. That's changing a bit, right? The state has become less um, flexible, less nimble. It's no accident that someone like Serebnikov, who was once celebrated by the state, is now very much on the outs. He ended up, of course, the subject of this um, clearly politically motivated embezzlement and and fraud uh, case that he now has wriggled out of yet again in kind of his third act being uh, released from uh, those charges or having that case fall apart. But uh, that may be changing the idea of, of the, the Putin state's either willingness or, or ability to bring in all manner of figures and to have them some in some way or form be on the inside rather the out, than the outside. That may be uh, changing, but but so far it's it's been pretty successful at doing that. You just mentioned this idea of the wily man, and it plays quite a big part in your book. Can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Right. So the wily man was the name of an essay that Lovada wrote in 2000, the year that um, Putin became president. And it was the result of Lovada's own frustration or confusion about why a lot of the attributes of the so-called uh, homo sovieticus personality type, the Soviet man who emerged uh, as a result of, of the Soviet Union and Soviet society, why that person didn't disappear with the disappearance of the Soviet Union. Lovada was at a time... Uh, or for a time quite hopeful that with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, that uh, personality type would also um, come to an end. Uh, And it didn't. It it actually put down roots and began reproducing uh, itself. And the wily man was Lovada's attempt to understand why and and who was this person if he or she could no longer fairly be called Soviet at that point. Uh, And the wily man is is someone uh, who, as Lovada wrote, quote, not only tolerates deception but is willing to be deceived and even requires self-deception for the sake of his own self-preservation. Another important idea or element of the wily man, Lovada goes on, is it's someone who, quote, adapts to social reality, looking for oversights and gaps in the ruling system, looking to use the rules of the game for his own interest, but at the same time, and no less important, he is constantly trying to circumvent those very same rules. So, the wily man and this notion of, of wiliness, uh, there's a, a relationship with, with the state in which uh, the individual kind of serves up some half-truths or deceptions. They're, they're kind of offerings to the bureaucratic uh, machine um, and also told to one another as, as justifi- justifications for sort of squelching ambition or, or maybe having a kind of squishy sense of morality. It's, it's a way of coming up with a modus vivendi, I guess you could say, with a system that you can't uh, necessarily control or or change, right? It's a response to being an individual in a system uh, where that system has so much of, of the power and controls so much of the resources, and maybe you don't even uh, like or favor or, or fully respect that system, but nonetheless, it's the one you're uh, bound up in, the one you're you're stuck in, and how do you go about eking out a life kind of in the in the margins or, or within the, the strictures of that system. Do you see any change in how young people in Russia today view this system of compromise? I did a bunch of reporting with the so-called 
Putin generation, people who were born on or after 2000 and therefore have, have grown up and lived under no other president than Putin uh, for the book. And, and the whole last chapter is is forward looking and uh, based on reporting with with young people around the country. And anecdotally, I do think that this generation differs from their parents and their grandparents one in some pretty key ways. You know, one of the basic um, elements of Levada's wiliness or wily man theory is that people are pretty uh, clear-eyed about all of the failings and deficiencies and, and maybe underlying corruption of the state. And they don't confront that state directly, but rather try and find all these kind of workarounds, eke out little private spaces, maybe even try and outmaneuver or deceive the state where they can for personal benefit. And that essentially is a a kind of cynical or, or, or quite cynical uh, relationship to to state and and to uh, the the system, and this younger generation in in my conversations with them seems like they have a different, more earnest and kind of forthright relationship or attitude toward the state. They didn't want to have to outmaneuver or or deceive the state to get what they wanted. They wanted the state to just deliver on what it nominally purports to to be able to deliver on or or, or, or declares. Uh, it will deliver on. There was a much more earnest and, and forthright uh, series of expectations from from the state. That's not to say that this generation is in some way revolutionary or insurrectionary. I, of course, I did speak to many members uh, of this generation who were, say, participants in protests organized first and foremost by Alexei Navalny. But on the whole, they were, uh, if not exactly you know, status quo oriented, they definitely weren't trying to rush toward the barricades. But they did have this less cynical and more honest and earnest uh, set of attitudes about how they imagined interacting uh, with the state and what they expected from their lives. You know, the question is, of course, what happens as they get older? If the fundamental structure of the Putin system stays more or less the same, then they'll confront the same dilemmas of compromise that their parents and grandparents did. And how will they respond? Will they become wily as previous generations have, or will they uh, refuse or or prove unable to do so and have some different form of relationship uh, with the state? That's a big open question that I think we'll only find out once, once it happens. Great. Thanks for being with us today, Josh. Thanks a lot for having me. And you can find Josh's book, Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia at your favorite bookstore or online at Amazon. Thanks. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russia watchers find us. You can follow Joshua Yaffa's writing in The New Yorker and his book Between Two Fires, Truth, Ambition and Compromise in Putin's Russia is out now at your favourite bookstore. Or if you're in Russia, you can download the Kindle version from Amazon. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on the network case as well as the latest from Russian politics, business, art, culture and more. You'll also find details of the Moscow Times crowdfunding campaign there. And if you consume our independent reporting from Russia, please consider throwing your spare change our way. I'm your host, Jake Cordell. Our producer was Pyotr Sauer. Thanks again for being with us, and we look forward to joining you next week with more news from Russia. 